No, no, I've sat here and plow through it till about 10.30 every morning. New audio reveals what happened in the moments after the gunman opened fire. That's a huge statement, and yet one person. Research would say just the opposite, and you're going to say, what? And now, the safety zone. So, Mike, we're going to pick up and, and talk about an important subject that we started a few podcasts ago. We were talking about your background and in terms of, of course, the Hollinsburg murders that took place when you were a child and kind of led you into the whole path of intervention and prevention of crime versus reacting. And I, I just find it fascinating because of all the tentacles that includes, whether it's kids that you know, follow the wrong path, drugs, robbery. In this case, with the Hollinsburg murders, it started out with those things and then murder. But then also kids that we've seen like in the high school shootings um, with some of these young men. And how did they get to that point? And so it really, your heart is on intervention. And you want to tell us a little bit of even how when you're a police officer, and we'll backtrack just a little bit for the background, for those that didn't hear before, what motivated you to become even a violent crime detective, domestic violence specialty expert? Yeah. Well, thanks. I have probably joked about this for years as I worked and trained with police and communities, I oftentimes would, you know, say to the police, just trying to get them to relax and join in with the training. I said, what did all of you say when you went through an interview to become a police officer? They asked the magic question, why do you want to be a police officer? Nobody says, because I want to chase bad guys and catch them and put them in prison. That is not what you said. Everybody says, I want to help people. And everybody smiles. Everybody gets it. I said, we all said that. We all believed it at one time. And then what happens, we enter into kind of a bureaucracy that was not put together to really help or prevent things. What we really became was police officers that responded to things. Somebody gets shot, we show up. Somebody steals your car, we show up. Somebody breaks into your house, we show up. Unless we just stumbled upon a crime in progress, very rarely did we keep something from happening to you. And so I think that a lot of frustration comes in with a lot of police officers over time. It's just one call after another. And I'm putting a bandaid on a problem. I'm basically trying to triage you, but I know you still have a gaping wound, but I got to move on to the next call. And I was probably more frustrated within about 12 months. Some people can spend 25 years and just kind of work through it. But after about a year, I was already, I'd reapplied to law school. I was leaving. This job was not what I thought it was going to be. But at about that time, our mayor got wind that we were looking at some numbers in terms of how many women and children were killed every year in Nashville with domestic violence. And we were starting to put flags and numbers together to say, these people are asking for help many times. They've called the police six or seven times, but prior to ever calling the police the first time, they've called somebody in the community, crisis line, went to healthcare, social worker, somebody at church. They had 
reached out five or six times. So now you're telling me this victim who was killed has asked for help 11, 12, 13 times before they were killed. I think we can do something about this. Our department wasn't convinced and they felt like it was kind of jammed down from the mayor's office. But what do you do when the chief executive (laughs) says this program's going? And so I think they tried to subvert the program for the first couple of years. I mean, they didn't buy us enough cars. So we'd have three detectives sharing one car and the determination from the group that we brought in. And they were all very young detectives for the most part. I'd only been on three years. A few of the more seasoned investigators were the ones that somehow had maintained a sense of not losing their mind in this reactionary model. And they really bought into, I think we can do something here. And we did almost immediately. The number of domestic murders dropped by 50% and has stayed consistently mm. at, at, a, at that reduction. So it was a real lesson in preventing crime versus just reacting to it. And so it's a model that's pretty unique for law enforcement. It's really a mentality and it's a huge paradigm shift for a big organization like that to move from just reacting to crime, then relying on some data to figure out what are the red flags? Are there potentially paths to have prevented this from ever happening to begin with? When you said 50%, I mean, that's a huge number to cut in half those cases. I mean, mm-hmm. that's amazing. That type of program, is it, is it throughout other states? Is this something that still is in need in other areas, in other police departments, or just in the community um, itself? You know, what does that model look like? I mean, I know many communities tend to interact on those, you know, at-risk uh, kids, at-risk families. Um, what is that element? I think we're much better than we were 20 years ago. I don't think we're nearly as far down the interstate as I would have hoped we would have been in this country. A couple of things I realized very quickly in Nashville, and we talked about this, and I, I used it as part of my model when I left Nashville and worked with communities really all over the world to plant the Nashville model. One of the things I talked a lot about beyond the training and understanding and how you implement this, how you do this, how do you coordinate together, I said the key piece that you have to solve right now is those of you that are sitting here, you're all coming at this from a grassroots level. You believe me, you buy into this just like I did, but at some point you're going to retire. Who fills your position when you retire? If they don't believe the same way you do, everything we're doing right now is for not. And I think, you know, sustainability has been an issue across the country. Literally, I, I did a post on, Saturday, the Southern Baptist Caringwell article that I had written talking about a stay-at-home order is extraordinarily dangerous for victims of abuse. And I had one survivor reach out to me, somebody I had known for 25 or 30 years. And in a quick conversation, I could tell the response she had received from the system has not been good or not been adequate. And so that's kind of a recurring theme is prevention takes some work. It's not as easy as just answering a bunch of calls and logging them in a book and moving on to something else. 
But from a visionary standpoint, if I'm a leader of a police department, if I can look at this and say the short term, the workload may go way up because the better we had become in Nashville, what happened was the report rates went up significantly. So if we had 20,000 calls a year for help, for domestic violence, we went up to 35 or 40,000. Why? Because we were only capturing a small percentage of victims that were calling. So you've got to have the staying power to get over that hump because once you plateau, which we did, then the numbers started going down. But that was a five-year cycle in Nashville. Mm -hmm. That was about four years going up and then it started coming down. And in the fifth year, they were actually fewer calls for domestic violence than when we had started the program. And that number can continue to decline. So longer term, you start to see your officers aren't just running from call to call to call to call to call. If you give them a toolbox to help solve some of this, so we never have to come out to this house again. Hmm. What would be those tools to intervene in domestic violence, uh, child abuse, even at-risk youth, kids that are struggling. I I know uh, when we had talked one time about the uh, Marjorie Stoneman High School shooting in Florida, I believe it was Nicholas Cruz, the young man, and you and your uh, advisor, Paul, from the Secret Service, talked about what this kid had actually gone through I believe losing both parents leading up to this, to the shooting, which of course was horrific, but that there was probably no intervention in his life. Very strong parallels between what we've been seeing with the kind of student active shooter and what we were doing in Nashville at about 2004 when we launched this program. It's the same kind of data sets. And so when we looked at cases where a victim had asked for help multiple times, it gets a little more granular than that. We had to begin to do threat assessments and that is behavioral threat assessments and looking at what are the things inside these relationships, you know, what are some indicators? And we knew based on some really good research, John Hopkins has been really kind of at the forefront of this. We knew that studying fatalities where victims had been killed, we started to understand what some of the common behavioral themes were. And so we could immediately begin to train our 2000 police officers that were responding to a home. When you hear this, when you see this, these certain types of behaviors, when you start adding these up, you're doing a quick threat assessment on the scene and you're starting to realize, wow, this victim is in a really dangerous spot. And some of it is almost complete opposite of what our culture tells us. Uh, For example, Melinda, if we went out and stood on a street corner today, six feet apart, of course, and we talked to folks walking by and we ask them one question, what advice would you give a victim of domestic violence to solve his or her problem? 90% of them would say, tell her to leave. Well, Research would say just the opposite. And you're going to say, what? And I used to say this to police, uh, pushing somebody out the door. Yeah. You push them out the door. You may get them killed if they're not prepared to leave. Because what do we see? We see 90% of women killed in the United States are killed after they leave, not at home. 
when they're trying to leave and they, they don't have a good safety plan in place. And so beginning to understand that there were times I left victims when I was working cases and the safest place for them at that point was staying home. And I've had victims, you know, say to me in the midst of this, it is so much easier to protect myself when I can see the enemy than when I don't know where the enemy's at. Once I leave, I don't know where they're coming from. They're going to hit me from the side. I don't know where they're hiding. We see the same thing with the school shootings. If you look at the, the crews, who's the young kid down in Florida at Parkland, mm-hmm. Nicholas Cruz. If you look at his history, I'm telling you, you don't even have to be trained to understand this kid needed help. He lost a parent and then within a year or two lost another parent. I mean, I am a parent of three kids who lost a mother when they were little. I know what impact losing a mother has on a child. It is huge in a stable environment. Add in instability and not just one loss. Now I lose my second guardian or parent. And so it was just a series of red flags that nobody connected. And you've got people dealing with it in silos and not connecting these dots When in fact, most of us, if I had seen a third of what I've seen since then, I would have said, this kid is on a path to destruction. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be a brain surgeon to come up with that. Mm -hmm. But too often, we don't understand the behaviors. We're looking at them in silos. I only see what I'm dealing with as a counselor or a principal or a school resource officer. And we're not putting all of those flags together that paints the whole picture of what that threat looks like. It, it seems like it's a, it's a team effort in, in many ways. I'm curious, do you see a role in an ideal situation, I guess, but on intervention and, and prevention, do you see a role within a community, within churches, within places, places of worship, communities of faith, but also in terms of working together with the police, working together with community entities that help in terms of domestic violence. Is there keys in, in that aspect as well? Is it, is it a bigger picture of intervention? It's an integrated community's problem, and the solution comes from the community. And it's funny because you bring this up, and as I would go into a community, maybe I'm there for a couple of days and we're doing foundational training, and then we're talking through how do you start a program like Nashville? And they're expecting this really complex drawing and arrows and all of these tasks that need to happen. When in fact, I started with one thing. I said, this will be the one thing you need to do. And it will either make this happen or prevent this from happening. All your stakeholders in the community have to work together and communicate. That sounds so easy. It is not. I mean, as a police department, we did not share information with anybody else. And if if we even look at 9-11, when the terrorists struck here, one of the things that came out of 9-11 was what? Law enforcement agencies don't talk to each other. Well, I'm I'm looking at it going, duh. I mean, they're very competitive. FBI is not sharing with the ATF, with the New York City Police Department. or, And so now you're telling me, I've got to talk to social workers and counselors. And so for a lot of cops, they're like, "Mm, 
you know, I'm a cop. I'm not a social worker. I'm not, you know, hug a thug was something that came up a lot when you talked about this more community policing model. But that was the probably the, the conduit that made Nashville successful was that everybody began to communicate from healthcare, social workers, counselors, domestic violence programs. On any given day, I could have representatives of those different uh, organizations in our office and we were communicating on cases. Some of it was confidential. If I'm a counselor, I couldn't share things in a counseling session, but they may encourage the, the victim to then tell me or somebody else about this so that we could help provide some kind of safety solution for it. So it's a hundred percent, the community, the church plays a central foundational role. And I've said this for years. I think the church really as a whole, and I'm, I'm speaking very generically here because some are doing incredible things, but as a whole, I don't think the church really understands domestic violence the role it plays in child abuse, the role that domestic violence plays in other crimes. A kid who robs a bank, we may never connect the fact that he was raised in a home where there was domestic violence. So foundationally, his anger or rage criminality actually had a foundation in domestic violence. All I see is he robbed a bank. And so, you know, I do a whole workshop just on the impact of witnessing violence on kids inside these homes. And it really has a huge impact on our community. Is the underlying thread always anger, rage as a response to how they've grown up? Uh, what, what do you see sometimes as underlying issues? The good news is it's not an anger issue. If it were an anger issue, we could say, oh, he couldn't control that. And there's still a lot of belief systems around that. This abuser came home, something didn't happen right, had a bad day at work and explodes and can't control that. 100% fiction. And how do I know that? Because when you study domestic homicides and you look at cases where a victim or a child has been killed and you start to put the pieces of the puzzle together, what I found and what research has found, not me, but what the research has found, very controlled behavior, very well thought out. Um, I used to have a stack of newspaper clippings that I use when I train new police officers in Indiana and I would set them up on the podium and I would say, you know, they could see how thick it was. I said, that's how many children have been killed in Indiana over the last two years in homes with domestic violence. And the single common denominator here, those children weren't being physically abused in that home, but the mother made a decision to leave and the abuser sometimes only killed the child. Why is that? Well, what's the worst thing a mother could endure? Not that she gets killed, but you kill my child and now I have to live with that. So murder, suicide, huge. And I've tried for years when we were doing training with judges to get them to understand this child may never have been physically touched inside that home. But the moment you go through, they go through this divorce proceeding, the risk to that child put a bullseye on their back. The risk to them has just increased exponentially. 
only because they are in this home and now they're separated. They now are a target that can be used against that victim who has left that relationship. Mm. Out of bitterness, a way to get back bitterness, to the spouse. Bitterness, control. It's all about control. Everything mm. in these relationships, and I think even the children, when you're raised in this home, you're raised with the sense of having no control over your life, right? Can you imagine standing there as a child trying to prevent this? Yeah. You're trying to help your mom and you're defenseless. Well, you start to have now a sense of powerlessness, like I have no power or control. And how do I control people? I mean, this is what crime is about. When you're talking physical violence, it is always about controlling. I don't care if you're a serial killer. Ted Bundy had issues. And if you looked at his victims, they were very similar. They looked very similar. It was about controlling them. It wasn't about some rage that couldn't be controlled within this person. It's all about controlling. And, and these relationships, sexual abuse, all of it's about the power and control. And that violence is that mechanism or vehicle to have some control over something that, you know, manifests itself in somebody who feels very powerless. Mm. In some ways, it's just so consuming, you know, when you think about it. But, but in the other aspect, you obviously saw results. So, you know, what do you, what do you feel is the keys to intervening, especially in a child's life? What, what do they need? What is something that stands out to you from all your years of experience? I guess maybe I'm selfish, right? You know, when I look at a child and think, if I can change the course of their life, if they're tracking down a path that's going to potentially lead them into a life of violence. What happens if they intersect with one of my family members? So very selfishly, I don't want that. I want to prevent somebody from growing up and becoming somebody who commits acts of violence in our community or becomes, there's two types of ways they're going to process this. They're either going to act out, control you and hurt you, or they're going to act in. And so why do we have so many drug abuse problems in our community? I'm just self-medicating. I'm controlling myself. I'm going to drink. I'm going to use drugs. I'm going to use something to medicate myself. So there's outward violence, and I call drug and alcohol abuse just inward violence. It's just another way of trying to control me. And then what impact is that having on our communities as well? And so at a, at a root... I, Maybe it's because it's the way I'm wired. It drives me nuts. I'm, my brain never shuts down. I don't care what I'm doing, what I'm watching, what I'm looking at. When I see a problem, I can't help but start looking at how do you solve that? Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably what has kept me so engaged in violence prevention for so long is this is a problem that has some solutions that can have huge impacts on communities. And too often we just don't invest because it does take an investment to be able to, to do prevention or intervention. It's much more of an investment than it is to just simply check on duty and go take 30 calls a night and then check off, go home and let the next shift deal with it. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, when we did the podcast on your background and, and on the Hollinsburg murders, you 
had mentioned with uh, one of the perpetrators who you, who you had met and befriended in prison and share with the audience because they may not have heard that, that first podcast, but what he said would have helped him, what he felt he needed or could have had to intervene, preventing him from going down the wrong path that he did that he never expected he would murder somebody. When, when he started on this path of being around the wrong people and drugs and the whole thing. That was just so, not chilling, but just, it seems so simple and yet yeah. so important. Yeah, Dan had said to me, Dan Stonebreaker, um, one of the first visits, we were kind of wrapping up this first visit and he kind of looked at me and he said, you know, what I've learned and what I've learned from the psychologist um, since being incarcerated if I would have had just one, one positive male influence in my life, I would not be here today. And he fell in with the ringleader of this group who was a clear cut sociopath. But he said he made me feel good about myself, things I wasn't feeling at home or had not felt anywhere else. And so I just followed him. And what it eventually led him to do was follow him into a house where they murdered four boys and left the mother for dead. But it really came down to one thing. He needed one positive male influence in his life. And he would have been out here preaching today, um, as opposed to preaching behind four walls and bars for the last 40 some years. That's a huge statement. And yet one person you know, I mean, it makes you realize just going down to how one person can make a difference in someone's life. It, it can make such a huge difference. And, and you can look at this from two different angles. If, if I'm looking at it from a church ministry perspective or a volunteer organization, I can look at the positive aspect of having that influence with this child. I can also look at this from that same perspective as a church ministry or volunteer organization and say, if we're not doing things correctly to protect the children that we have in our care, it takes one person to harm them. And I have changed the whole course of that person's life. It's not a matter of they're going to get over this. They don't get over this. Some people are able to manage it and and move on and have extraordinarily productive lives and careers others we may push them onto a path that is self-destruction to violence and so for organizations it's a dual-edged sword i've got this obligation to help breathe in but i also have an obligation to care for and make sure we're doing everything we can to keep our kids safe so that those who want to harm them cannot have easy access to them. Mm. It's a powerful subject, but I think it's also a real convicting subject of really just, just individually how we, and as an organizations too, how we can, I mean, not to, to paraphrase, but we can make or break someone's trajectory and, and to hear that. And I, and I know we've heard that, from other high profile cases, even in with Nicholas Cruz down at Parkland in Florida, you wonder in that respect, this young man, I mean, again, what he did was horrible and we're not diminishing at all the crime, but if one person had interjected into his life, 
uh, recognized what the trauma that he had gone through, how much different it can be. And it, it really leads us to realize that we, we really need to look at that. We need to come together as a community. The church needs to be involved in people's lives and also in protecting uh, people under their care, um, but that it is a community aspect. And we just really thank you, Mike, for all that you've done in this and still do and will be doing and probably another core subject to really go through because there's so many different layers to intervention that really have to be looked at. But thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. You bet. This podcast was sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions. See us at safehiringsolutions.com.